a lot of times you go to conferences and the panels are not very diverse. And we always used to wonder why. Are there any women? Are there any people of color who can speak on these topics? Well, the why is because look at who's organizing the event. And so as more of our members started to organize things and hold position of power, what we've done is we have diversified panels. We've diversified events. We've diversified awards by nominating our, our members for those awards. All right, y'all, I am here with another episode, and today I have Chastity Henry. Um, she is the founder of the New Roundtable, and, and I think this is really interesting because um, my perception of the legal field is it's the new, like, battleground, right? So in a civilized society, you know, you have, you don't fight over, we don't have duels anymore, right? We, we fight things out in the court, and our new lawyers are attorneys. And, um, and so I was really interested in this, in this group and um, getting the word out there because um, we need more diversity on these battlegrounds um, because it's a big reason why you see the inequity in the legal system that we have uh, now, in, in my opinion. So uh, thanks for coming on, Chastity. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Philip. Appreciate being on. So let's 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 go back and let's, let's let's talk about you and your background before we get into new round table. You know how'd you uh, how'd you get into law? Yeah, so I was raised and born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, to Ricky and Joyce Wilson, two amazing parents, and that's where um, the majority of my family still lives. So born and raised, I'm, I'm local. And I always knew I, I wanted to be either a doctor or a lawyer. It just seemed like good things to be. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have any one that I could look to in those fields, but you know, I saw Perry Mason reruns on TV, et cetera, and it looked like a cool thing to do. And so um, as I grew older, you know, I continued to seek out ways to uh, fight injustice. And I didn't obviously know that that's what I was doing when I was little. You know, when I was four or five or six, I'd be like, you know, why do boys get to do this and girls don't? Or why does this happen and that doesn't? Always pointing out issues of fairness, et cetera. And then I started to figure out that, well, I think as a lawyer, I might be able to do something about this if I think something is unfair. And so that's what really drew me toward the law. And of course, I thought I would be in courtroom because that's what most people think of when they think about lawyers. So, and and like I said, I didn't know any lawyers, and so I could just go by the the model that I saw. Which, by the way, I didn't see any black women on TV as lawyers, or men, black men for that matter. But that's what I saw, and that's what I wanted to do. So, fast forward, I was in high school in Fort Worth. I went to a a high school for medical professionals because I thought I wanted to be a doctor. So I was going to choose doctor over lawyer. 
And then I actually started going to the hospital on clinical rotations, visiting with doctors, et cetera, and decided, no, it's probably not for me. So I'm going to go back to <laughs> go back to my first love of wanting to be a lawyer. And so, you know, basically, by the time I graduated from high school, I knew I wanted to go to law school. And I sort of started doing research and trying to figure out the best path for me. I did uh, have a family friend or two that I was introduced to who were lawyers. One was a prominent judge in Fort Worth. And so I was able to talk to them a little bit. But for the most part, I needed to sort of figure out my own path and what I was going to do. And so while I was in college, started doing research, knew I wanted to go back to Dallas because I had gone to college at Wheaton College that's outside of Chicago in the suburbs of Chicago. And so, you know, I want to go back to Texas, started doing research on law schools, a lot of message boards at the time. Uh, it was early in internet days, but I definitely took full, full advantage of the relatively high speed for that time <laughs> internet we had in college and did a lot of research and read up and figured out that the University of Texas in Austin happened to be one of the best law schools in the country. And it was in you know, my home state and it would be a good path to getting a job in Dallas or another major city. And so I set my sights on that. Tried to figure out you know, what, what LSAT score do I need? What GPA do I need? Uh, didn't take a fancy LSAT prep course for all of you aspiring lawyers who are listening. Uh, didn't, didn't have the thousand plus dollars that it cost back then to do that. And so what I did was went to the library the old-fashioned way, and I found a book of 30 old LSATs, and eventually I figured out I could go to a bookstore and buy a used version, and so I did that, and I took a practice LSAT exam under timed conditions every Saturday mm. during uh, the, the semester leading up to taking the LSAT exam, and I would take the test. I'd time myself in the library, then I would study the answers, what I got right, what I got run, wrong, et cetera. And so basically I ended up doing for myself the thing that the prep courses do for you, which is they make you take uh, lots of practice exams under time conditions and they analyze your answers. Long story short, it all worked out. I thankfully got into UT, which was my first choice. And after college, I headed down to Austin to start my uh, my career or I guess my journey as a law student for, for the next three years after that. And, and so and I, you, and you didn't need to have any uh, rich parents bribe any tennis coaches. I did not. Didn't <laughs> even know that was an option. Uh, would not have been able to take advantage of that particular path, <laughs> even if it were an option. <laughs> but yeah, that's crazy. Um, and, you know, there was also scandals that came out after the fact about UT law as well. Oh, you know, on wow. one hand, so on the one hand, there was the lawsuit that took place a couple years, I think, before I went to UT over affirmative action, um, in which it was, I believe, the school was, you know, it, it was determined that they shouldn't be using race as a factor. And after that lawsuit ruling came down, uh, it really changed the diversity metrics at the school. Diversity went down a lot in the couple years after that. Uh, but then another case came through that kind of overturned it. Um, and then diversity numbers started to head up, which was encouraging. But anyway, at the same time as people were fighting over diversity, you know, little did we know, even though we suspected that 
kids of Congress people and rich people or getting into UT law with very much uh, subpar numbers. And so it wasn't, turns out, it wasn't the minorities that people should have been looking at. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was other types, other forms of affirmative action, uh, which is what's come out recently. But I digress on that. Feel, feel, feel free to digress on that all you want, because that's gonna, we're going to talk a lot about that in this episode. Uh, oh, I bet. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah, we <laughs> could talk a lot about it, because it goes into the dynamics of power and of class and of social status that have a huge impact on one who gets into the profession, and then who gets jobs, what types of jobs they get, what, what type of success rate, what type of mentoring they can do. Um, so it's a vicious cycle that hopefully... Uh, we're, we're doing some things that to hopefully help it come to an end, but I don't know where I was in answering. Yeah, so, so, so you got to, you got you got to Austin. You're doing your clerkship, and then that now the step before you became this big high power attorney in Dallas. I didn't say that. <laughs> I, I said it. I said it, so you didn't have to say it. Yeah, so I got to to Austin. Had a great time. Again, really focused on. You know, what's my goal and what do I need to do to accomplish it? So I, I, I sort of knew before law school that coming from a school like UT, you'd have a pretty good chance to work at a, a big car- corporate law firm, um, doing civil law, practicing civil law. And that was something that was new to me. Uh, and you didn't necessarily have to be in a courtroom to do that. And I was just sort of navigating and trying to understand those things. And I set my sights on getting a job, an internship after my first year at one of those big fancy corporate law firms in downtown Dallas. And what I knew is that I needed to make really good grades my first semester in order to accomplish that. So I knew that had to be done, but I'm sure everyone knows that, right? You go into law school, you wanna make the best grades possible. But what I really did a lot of research on was how how to make those grades. Is it simply a matter of reading all of the cases that are assigned to you, outlining them, which means taking really copious notes on all the major, the key points of the cases, essentially summarizing those? Uh, Or is there another way? And that's another thing that kind of privilege, class, access, um, really limits your ability to know how to play the game which is what it is when it comes to making a good, you know, making the grades in law school oftentimes because your grade comes down to one exam at the end of the semester. Mm -hmm. Or at least that's how it was when I was in law school. I think increasingly they're getting away from that, having midterms and more opportunities to to make a grade in a class. But uh, in my first year of law school, all five classes I had were gonna come down to one exam. Oh, wow. Right. So you have an entire semester of learning, of reading, of trying to distill all of this information coming at you. And you have to somehow um, synthesize that into useful information to make a good grade on the exam. But in my research, in my Internet research, as I loved to do, (laughs) I found out that there were outlines that students who came before us had already written for these same classes. And in those outlines, some were better than others, but in those outlines, they had summarized all of the cases and all of the elements of a contract, for instance. 
and all of the case law that supported that. And what getting my hands on those outlines, which is what my goal was, would do, was give me the big picture. You know, instead of waiting until November, December for it all to come together, I take a look at an outline that's fully baked for a course, and that tells me, oh, this is all, these are all the things I need to learn by the end of the semester. And this is how I will use the information to make it a grade. So I skipped right to the end and I got my hands on some outlines, whether those were from students that I knew from upperclassmen. And there's nothing illegal about this, by the way, or wrong, you know, people share notes and that's perfectly acceptable. But a lot of people don't know that that's, you know, a, a good thing to do. Uh, and there were also commercial outlines. There were big companies uh, who, for instance, published your course book that also sold in the bookstore outlines of those course books that once again, gave you a glimpse into the big picture. And so I bought those along with my books. And it's not that I didn't do the reading and the studying because I did, but I did it with the end in mind. So as I'm reading one case, I knew where this one case fit within the big picture of contracts or torts or con law and how to quickly apply it and move on rather than dwelling on it for three weeks to get one piece of information out of a case. So this is all the game that you're not gonna know if no one has told you mm -hmm. or if you haven't done some research on it. And once again, for a lot of people like myself, and this happens a lot for people of color, for women of color who are the first generation in law school, they don't have that network or people to tell them, oh, no, no, no. Before you start doing your own outline, look at these commercial outlines. And so that's why it's so important to mentor, to get back once you've been there. So long story short, I kind of luckily um, through my research figured out the game a bit and got those grades that I needed that first semester. Um, and from that, after that, first semester, which is again, you know, tells you how crazy law school is, one semester. And that can make or break you sometimes. Wow. One semester. So you can get the grades, get the internship after your first year, which needs, leads to more internships after your second year, which leads to a full-time job, which leads to the beginning of a career trajectory that you're not going to have if you didn't get those good grades that first semester. Not that you can't turn it around, but it because it's it's swimming upstream. Right. So again, coming into law school with that focus of I don't care what else happens, I'm not hanging out in the lobby. I'll talk to y'all two L year. Right now, <laughs> I'm going to the library. I'm gonna get these grades. So coming in with that focus, I think helped me a lot. I'm not gonna say that I maintained that level of focus for all three years, <laughs> but but thank but I didn't need to. Um, you know, because I was able to set myself up pretty well after the first semester. And so, and so I get the big job, the big corporate job, downtown Dallas. And in fact, I got two of them, thankfully, one in downtown Dallas and one in downtown Austin. So I split my first year after law school between two firms doing a corporate internship and, and talk about a whole new world. Mm -hmm. I, I had never been exposed to anything like it. Um, it's what you would imagine. You get off the elevator on the 40th floor, there's marble everywhere, there's glass everywhere, it's super nice. 
It's an office environment that I'd never worked in before because I went straight from college to law school. Very few people looked like me. Um, I was nervous. I didn't want to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. I wanted to prove that I belonged there, even though I was one of maybe two people of color uh, at one firm and then the only one at the other in the entire summer associate class, summer oh, wow. class. And so these are the factors that are, as you can see, there's just, there's a lot, there's a lot to kind of get a handle on when embarking upon a career as a lawyer. And so thankfully I met some great people. In fact, one of my best friends to this day is a person who I interned with that first summer and she was in my class as well. Her name's Allison. Shout out to Allison if she ever hears this. And I have another best friend named Allison, too, that I met in law school. So two Allisons. Um, so I met some great people along the way. And that helped a lot with the anxiety. That helped a lot with the fitting in in a, in a foreign environment. And um, that law firm is a big corporate law firm in Dallas, where I started my career, as a matter of fact. And there I was exposed to all kinds of practice areas. Uh, I decided that I wanted to be in the courtroom because again, that's all I knew. And big law, law firms, I'm sorry, big law schools tend to steer you in that direction. Um, and so I was going to be a corporate litigator um, defending large corporations in all number of lawsuits. That's what I was going to do. And that's not what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I thought I was going to do starting out. So I, anyway, I could talk on and on yeah, about yeah, so, so the past. So jump in with questions. Yeah, let's, 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 let's get into new round table. So you got, um, and, and, and just for my curiosity, what type of law do you practice now? I practice mergers and acquisitions. Okay. And so, and which is what I switched to doing at the law firm that I joined after law school. But essentially, I do it in-house now for a company, Kimberly Clark Corporation. Uh, and so what I do is guide them from a legal perspective in either purchasing assets or a business or another company or selling assets uh, or parts of the business, et cetera, whatever happens to be going on at the time. And I advise on the legal process for doing that. Got it. Got it. Which is, which there's even few, fewer minority or women in, in, in mergers and acquisitions out of all the areas that, that I know of. Yes, that <laughs> is correct. <laughs> we um, can go down this rabbit hole on any, any topic <laughs> you bring up, but yeah, that, that's the case in, in, in M&A for sure. So new round table, what, what made you decide to organize that? You know, it really goes back to all of those topics that we kind of hit on before about you know, if you're new to this, if you don't have sort of people who have guided you before, even if you do have that, it's just difficult to be successful in this environment for a number of reasons. And it's difficult for a lot of people. It's difficult for men, for women, for people of color, for uh, non-people of color, but there are some particular challenges, I think for people of color and then for women of color and then to break it down even further to my group for African-American women. And so circa 2010-2011, uh, a group of Black women in Dallas who were graduates of UT Law School in different classes 
uh, but around the same time, started getting together in Dallas just to have happy hours, to connect, to reconnect, to talk about challenges we were facing. At that point, we had been out of school a few years. Some were younger than others, but at that time, I'd been out of school, I guess, five years in 2011. And so we were at a point in our careers where we were either in-house lawyers, meaning we were working for a company and trying to climb the corporate ladder, ladder to GC, general counsel, uh, that way, or we were still at law firms and trying to make partner, which is the ultimate goal at a law firm. And so we talked about the challenges. In law firms, for instance, if you're not establishing those relationships with the partners, who, as you can imagine, are not women of color for the most part. Mm-hmm. You're not establishing those relationships, getting those meaty work assignments, getting that experience, getting in front of the clients. And the clients are the people in-house who hire the outside lawyers. If you're having trouble in any of those areas, you're going to have a difficult time making partner at a law firm. And really the same in-house. If you're not establishing relationships with executives, who, again, not women of color, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of politically in where you need to be, then you're going to have a hard time rising through the ranks. So we talked about those challenges with one another, and we spent a lot of time talking about the kind of the same issues over and over again that we were facing. And so kind of gradually over time, it became apparent that we needed to do some things to help one another and to help ourselves. So instead of being this outward looking endeavor of, hey, I wish someone would give me work or I wish someone would hire me or ask me to speak at a conference or ask me to join a board, we looked around and we thought, you know what, we have the relationships. Why can't we leverage those? Why can't Mm -hmm. we leverage one another? Why can't I give the woman sitting next to me business? if a case comes up. Why can't I recommend her for a job or she recommends me for an award or to speak at a conference when it's in her purview to do so? And thanks to my husband, Justin Henry, um, I want him to know that I gave him some credit. I would go to him with these ideas like, hey, we can do this for ourselves. And he was very supportive and he was like, yeah, you can, you have a lot of power, you should leverage it. And so that's how the idea for the new roundtable was formed. And in in October of 2014, I called a group together of about 25 women, Black women in Dallas. A lot of us had been attending those happy hours, but the group expanded outside of UT Law to include alumni of other law schools and other people we knew who were practicing in town and called them together and basically just laid out uh, a three-pronged mission and that's to empower one another by building mutually beneficial relationships between in-house counsel and outside counsel um, to impact the profession by facilitating opportunities for one another, such as board service, jobs, speaking engagement, leadership opportunities, publishing, um, and then influence the legal profession by partnering with law firms and companies to drive diversity in recruitment and hiring and retention and promotion, et cetera. And so, and that three-pronged mission, empower, impact, and influence is, by the way, still our mission today. 
in our mission statement, but kind of got a presentation together, floated the idea out to these 25 or so women, and everyone loved it. And they were like, this makes perfect sense. We should come together. We should use our resources to help one another. And, you know, and let's bet on ourselves and see how far we can go if we put our energy not into lamenting the structures that exist, but to helping one another, uh, into helping one another to change those structures. And so that's how the new round table was born. And by the way, new stands for Network of Empowered Women. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's how we came about, October 2014. That's so when we official. I have, I have a couple of questions around that. And before I go into like what y'all actually doing initiatives and mentoring, where I want to start is, and, I, and I'm just curious, and this is somewhat off topic, right? So I, I hear a lot people will say, hey, Philip, you know, black people don't want to work together, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, I, and I've always said, I don't know these people. Like, I don't know these people. <laughs> you know, I said, maybe, maybe it's a generational thing, but, or the people that I hang out with, but yeah. every, everybody who I knows, you know, I like, you know, I have an affinity with um, people who are, uh, you know, Christians. And so whether they're white, black or whatever, we like to network and help each other. I have affinity yeah. with black people, which includes men and women. I have an affinity with black men. I said, but I haven't, I haven't run into people who didn't want to uh, work with me because I'm black. Like there's haters in every affinity, you know, that just want to be negative, but I don't, they get weeded out quick out of my life. Did, did y'all right. like didn't run into that, right? Did y'all run into any of that? No, we never ran into that, but we always hear about, I mean, hear this criticism or complaint or even sometimes have at times ourselves felt that certain generations, especially, were not reaching out. We're not reaching back and mentoring us. You know, if we, if there's one other person of color at a firm or in an environment, you'd expect, and they have more experience and more power, you'd expect them to kind of lend a hand. That wasn't always happening. Um, and, you know, we've talked about it a lot and thought about it a lot, but one dynamic that's always been at, at play when you think about um, generations before us, they were truly pioneers. And it could be that at times they were so focused on just surviving, you know, making sure they made it, making sure that they opened up a door for others to come behind them, that perhaps there wasn't always time to organize and reach back sort of proactively in the way that we have. Um, so I'm not saying it's right, but, you know, we have the luxury of their efforts, right. um, the ones who have come before us, whether they've intentionally reached back or just provided um, just been a role model or a trailblazer for us so that the next woman of color could walk into a law firm and not be looked upon as someone they never worked with before. You know, that prior experience sort of opens the door for future generations. All that to say is it's not, I don't think it's that it, it's an intentional, but I don't think there's been a lot of focused effort. And this is in many arenas. This is in politics. Mm -hmm. when, when you think about African-Americans, you know, I often wonder who is helping to raise up the next generation of black leaders. Now, so, so going back to initiatives, so um, what are some of the things that y'all do uh, from an initiative standpoint to get out in the community and execute your vision? And, and I, 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 you know, I heard about y'all's mentoring program too, so. 
talk about that too. Yeah. So in terms of initiatives, so one prong is the empowerment. And we're firm believers that we needed to start out focusing on helping ourselves before we can help others. One of our group members loves to say that um, you got to put your own mask on before you can help others. Like on the airplane around, you put your own mask on and then you can help others. And so we had spent a lot of time early on focusing on that. And what that means is, um, you know, job openings, for instance, we're really big on that. When we have an inside scoop on a, on a, a position, let's say someone wants to go in-house or to go to another company, if one of our members, and we have 90 of us today, if one of our members is at that company, they're getting that resume to the top of the stack to the extent they can. Same with the law firm. And so that's a huge way of just getting an inside track on job openings. We help one another and it's been successful. We've had people directly get positions through our group and through those relationships. Um, a lot of our members are very active in other organizations like the American Bar Association, uh, the State Bar of Texas. And so they have the opportunities to organize conferences and events and put our members on panels, you know? And so, and that's where your profile comes into play. You know, you, you see a lawyer speaking about M&A on a panel and there is a lot of credibility that comes from that. And, you know, a lot of times you go to conferences and the panels are not very diverse. And we always used to wonder why. Are there any women? Are there any people of color who can speak on these topics? Well, the why is because look at who's organizing the event. And so as more of our members started to organize things and hold position of power, what we've done is we have diversified panels. We've diversified events. We've diversified awards by nominating our, our members for those awards um, and raised our profile collectively. And so we've helped each other with jobs to build our technical skills and to raise our profile. Um, and, you know, we've gotten board positions out of it. We've gotten publishing opportunities. And then on the influence side, we, um, we, we like to give back. I mean, we feel like we're obligated to give back, as a matter of fact. It goes back to what I was telling you about being in law school and feeling lost and not knowing how the game is played. Mm -hmm. We're trying to do something about that. One uh, program in particular, and it is not a new roundtable program, so I'm, I don't want the new roundtable to take credit for it at all. It's called the Diverse Attorney Pipeline Program, or DAP. And it was started by these two amazing women who I've gotten to know over the last few years named Tiffany Harper and Chastity Boyce. And they're both in Chicago. And it's geared around mentoring first-year women of color law students mm. about giving them that playbook that I talked about that's so important and helps them to be successful, to make the grades to get the jobs and to set them off on the right path for their careers. And I joined the board of DAP a couple of years ago. And one of the initiatives I'm heavily involved with for DAP is called DAP Direct. And that is a program where women of color interview law students after their first year or during their first year of law school. They interview law student women of color on behalf of law firms in order to get them those first jobs, those first internships that I talked to you about being so important. 
And we've done this, 2019 will be our second year. It's a nationwide program. It's been very successful. It's growing. It's doubled in size, as a matter of fact. And I mostly am involved with Dallas in that. And so I'll tell you, for instance, in Dallas, this summer, we're having 14 law firms, 14 big corporate law firms, hire 14 women of color as interns after their first year. And we have 14 companies partnering with them to also get to know those students and give those students an opportunity to spend time at headquarters such as Toyota and AT&T and Kimberly Clark and Mary Kay. Very important initiative. And as part of this program, there are mentors who are women of color in-house to, you know, that the student can test day or night or call and say, hey, I received an assignment and I really just have no idea what this partner is asking me to do. Please help. Or I was invited to this event, no idea what to wear. Please help. You know, things that just come up when you're not familiar with an environment you need help with. And, you know, guess who those mentors are going to be this summer? The new roundtable. You know, we, I'm, able, I'm fortunate to be able to send an email out to our membership and have 30 40 people sign up to mentor these law students each summer. And so that's one example of how we partner with other organizations such as DAP, such as DAP Direct in particular, to give back. Uh, because, you know, there's, it would be a shame going back to what I talked, going back to the concept of reaching back and giving back. It would be a shame to have 90 Black women lawyers in Dallas are successful at big companies and law firms um, only help ourselves. Right. If we don't pass that knowledge on, if we don't take law students under our wings, then it, it could potentially, the success could end with us. And that's the opposite of what we want. Yeah. And, and, and is there a, some sort of application process to become um, a member of New Roundtable? How, how is that? Yes, there is. Uh, so membership is by current member nomination only. And it's at the end of the year. And so yeah, it's, it's, there's no kind of public application, but yeah. word of mouth, it gets around by word of mouth. And so if someone knows one of our members, just express interest in joining the group. And when December comes around and we're nominating people for the group, that's when you know, your person that you know will nominate you, will invite you to a happy hour to get to know our members and what we do, and then we go from there. So we have a pretty structured uh, process that our membership chair, Courtney, has put in place. Okay, no, pretty, pretty cool. And, and, and this is another question that, so, and I'm super optimistic, so I'm asking it um, to, to get a feel for the environment, but ha have you heard of Robert Smith? I have not. So Robert Smith is a private equity guy, brother, you know, mm -hmm. Alpha from uh, Cornell, um, okay. and um, and he's a billionaire. And in the private equity world, you know, his fund has earned better returns than like all the big players that you've heard of. You know, Black, oh, wow. uh, you know, he's a tech, you know, early tech guy was at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. You know, um, great, you know, great story. Um, uh, but he's he's going from the you know to the top of the industry. But if you look at his private equity team and executives, it's it's a lot of 
minority, you know, women and minorities, you know, and not just black women, white women, but but the, the people who are overlooked at private equity companies, yeah. you know, the big ones, which are all white males, right? And so um, he proved out in, in application what, you know, we already knew. I was like, man, I think from a business standpoint, cause I'm a business guy, I think diversity is better because if you, in any situation where you have one point of view, yeah. like you're going to lose if you're going to get up against people who can like fight it out with different points of views and then as a team. Now, my question is, do you see um, that catching on in big companies and them fully understanding it, or is it still kind of, you know, fighting through uh, every, every obstacle? Now, absolutely, companies are catching on. And it helps that, I mean, like you said, we knew this intuitively, but not everyone did or wanted to face that. You know, people are going to assume that you get 10 people in a room that are similar to them or just like them, then of course they're going to have the best outcomes, right? Um, but that's been proven wrong, uh, emphatically so. In fact, when you have publications such as Forbes or McKinsey's, McKinsey & Co. come out, and report and have studies on the fact that diverse teams um, cause better business results, then companies pay attention. Because, you know, if companies have many goals and they're not just money driven, even though they are money driven, they're profit driven, um, they have philanthropic goals, et cetera. But in terms of profit, Companies are going to listen when studies prove that diverse teams make better business decisions and therefore the companies with diverse teams are more profitable. That's just very persuasive. Right. And so, yes, the, the message I think is out there. And of course, it's going to, there are going to be various varying degrees of implementation of those findings and actually doing something about it. But for instance, at Kimberly Clark, um, we have, I mean, diversity and inclusion is really a focus, thankfully. And it, within our legal department in particular, we're really, really focusing on it. So focusing on having diverse teams, diverse interview pan panels when we go to interview people, um, diverse slates of interviewees so that we can make the best decision from a diverse field of candidates. And um, one thing we're, we're focusing on is unconscious bias training. And that's removing bias from decision-making. So for instance, similarity bias. Bias that says people most like me are smartest, they make the best decisions, and I should have them on my team and only listen to them. That's a type of bias. Right, right. Um, and it's, you know, from a neuroscience perspective, it's, it's sort of hardwired in us if we don't pay attention to it. And so those are the types of trainings and uh, focuses you'll see at companies these days, uh, which is one of the things I love about being in-house and being a part of a co corporate culture and being a part of changing that culture, because I think you are seeing a sea change at a lot of companies and thankfully at, at the company that I work for as well. So uh, to answer your question, people are paying attention because there has been some empirical evidence that diversity is in fact good for business. It's not just a nice thing to do. Right. It's not just a warm and fuzzy, because that's not going to be enough to get people you know, to change. Um, but it's good for business and people and companies are definitely focused on it. No, that's good. Well, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the, the last part, the last five questions I ask everybody. Um, first question is, 
what would you go if you can go back in time and talk to 22 year old chastity what would you go back and tell her? 22 where was i at 22 i was still in college um <laughs> i would tell her to spend more time in chicago because it's only 45 minute train ride away uh and there's no reason why i didn't spend more time there uh, it was probably best I didn't spend a ton of time there, but I'd definitely say spend more time in Chicago and don't just stay out in the suburbs. Uh, take advantage of the world-class city I was in. Um, but I would also say I would give her the idea for the new roundtable sooner <laughs> uh, because, you know, it's my career trajectory has I mean it's been good and I've been very fortunate and you know and am on a good path but things have really taken off since I've banded together and been a part of this sisterhood where we lift each other up and help each other out and then collectively help others um, and I guess that started in 2014 when I was well, I guess I was still fairly young um, what was I, 33? But, you know, I think it should have started earlier than that in our careers because we didn't realize it, but even as struggling, you know, first-year law students, we had the power to come together and help one another. Even as first-year uh, lawyers, we had that same power. We just didn't have the confidence to tap into it. And so I would say be more confident in us. Make more bets on yourself and on your, you know, colleagues who, you know, are people of color, are women of color, to help one another out of these these challenges that we face. Okay. What are what are the three places that you that you like to do business with, either personally or from a business standpoint? You're like, hey, I spend money here, and I mm -hmm. like spending money here because whatever. What are those three companies? Oh, that's a good question. <clears throat> Well, there's ideally where I would spend my money and then okay, yeah, that too. where I, I actually do. So actually, Amazon gets a ton of my money <laughs> okay. because they've made things so easy. They'll deliver groceries to my door. And, you know, as a working parent and mother of two young kids, that's clutch. So anytime you can cut out the grocery trips or, you know, get uh, no kidding last night, I realized that my son needed a costume for school today. Amazon had it to my door in one hour. Wow. Not going to say what extra fees I had to pay for that, <laughs> but, you know, they, they, they do a good service. Um, and I like local, you know, we love local restaurants. Um, one spot is the Island Spot in Oak Cliff, and it's also in Carrollton, the original location. My friend, Shalon Clark Thomas, and her husband, Richard Thomas, own the spot. Um, Richard's from Jamaica, has his recipes from his grandmother, uh, really good food. And Shalon is a new roundtable member, one of the founding members uh, and a board member of ours, as a matter of fact. So yes, local businesses, all about it, especially when we're helping one another, you know, empowering one another through where our dollars are spent. I'm a big fan of that. And I think we should do more of it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and what's the third one? A third one, so there's Amazon, there's local restaurants like the Island Spot. Um, where do I spend my money a lot or where should I? 
don't know. I, I think that's where we go to aspirational. Like there are just the run of the mill places, no place in particular or special. But I think if we focus the the resources and the energy, we focus on the new roundtable of supporting each other. If we would, for instance, can say, okay, I'm going to support black businesses in Dallas this way and only go to this bank or buy hair products from this place, I think it's very powerful. Yeah, A lot of economic empowerment can come from that. So you just gave me an idea. Uh, it's not a new idea, but just for myself <laughs> to start focusing more on that too, of you know, sort of economic empower, empowerment and the choices we're making with our money and how that can build communities. Okay, no, cool. Uh, question number three is entertainment. So when you do get time, you know, which I know is not a lot because you're, y'all are similar to me and my wife, two two young kids and yeah. And but when you do get free time and you like to shut your mind off, what do you like to watch for entertainment? Like specific shows or movies that you like? Yeah, I mean, Game of Thrones, one of our favorites. Um, that's definitely what's coming back in April. So <laughs> looking forward to that. We like Power. It's a great series that we watch. We love This Is Us. Um, I think those are the main ones. So we okay. definitely will binge watch a TV series to just take our minds off of work mm -hmm. and everything else. Like after the kids are in bed. <laughs> get to open a bottle of wine, watch some Game of Thrones. That's definitely uh, a, a preferred way to relax. Uh, I'm sure you, you and your wife can probably relate. Mm -hmm. Yep. Where, where do you get your news? And I mean specifically, like, is it TV, internet, uh, magazine? Um, all on my phone. Okay. So it's going to be online publications, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, CNN.com, etc. And I did two things. My husband made a suggestion. There's this, there is this um, email sort of newsletter called The Morning Brew. Ooh, I, 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 look, I, I look at that every morning. Is, I yes. look at that every morning. It's a great source to just kind of get up speed real quick. Bam, bam, bam. What's happening? You know, found myself relaying information I just read about that morning in meetings and sounding very authoritative on things that I probably shouldn't be talking that deeply about, but at least I have a working knowledge, <laughs> not even a working knowledge, just a knowledge just from reading about it. But it really helps to kind of get unfiltered or filtered, but in a funny and light way, um, tidbits of the news. And I like that they have links that if you want to do a deeper dive on something, like, hey, what's going on with Brexit? I thought they were supposed to get this done three months ago. Bam, right. read a few articles about it, and there we go. And I'm talking to my British colleagues about Brexit and my opinion on the whole thing. <laughs> so my, I love my, morning brew. My wife laughs at me because she, I'll, I'll wake up, and the first thing I do is grab my phone and read the morning brew, and she's like, who starts reading first thing in the morning? I'm like, yeah. I could not know what's going on. No, that's exactly what I did. And I started, then I discovered the CNN does something similar, but it's more serious, not as funny, and more focused on news news and not just business news. Uh, they have a email newsletter called five things and they just hit top five things you need to know to be fairly well informed about what's happening today. And so I read that too. So okay. between those two, I feel informed enough. And then I follow up as, as, as needed. Uh, last question. What are the top three books you've read either recently or of all time? Hmm. All right. First is think big 
No, is it thinking? No, I'm going to say Gifted Hands by Ben Carson. Um, his recent political um, meanderings notwithstanding, that was a book that my dad handed to me when I was in junior high, and it really changed how I thought about what I could do and the impact I could have. Reading about him being a Black man and a neurosurgeon and the best in his field, um, it was really inspirational, which is why I ended up going to that high school of medical professions, as a matter of fact, and took kind of a detour from the law school path. But that was a huge book um, for me. Mm -hmm. um, another book big for me was probably any one of the early real estate books or money management books by Robert Kiyosaki. I really got into that for a time. Um, and kind of reading cash flow and my dad even bought the board game cash flow so we could learn how to manage our money um, when we were when we were a little younger and so love his books and that whole series of books and then recently of course Becoming by Michelle Obama is a book that my husband uh, bought me when it first, he pre-ordered it when it was first available and got it delivered to me on the first day and I read it in record speed. And I don't even read um, hard copy books anymore, but that one, you know, he, he sent to me or had delivered in hard copy and it was a really good throwback experience reading an actual book <laughs> in hard copy <laughs> and not on my phone. And plus, I mean, Michelle is phenomenal and inspirational, and I really enjoyed reading about her journey. And so those are kind of my top three. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I just thought about that. You and Justin do got like a Michelle and Obama thing going on, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'll take it as a compliment. We're, we're, we're trying to, you know, uh, yeah, emulate yeah. them. A lot of great things they've done as much as possible, but, but not mm -hmm. the White House part. Definitely yeah. not that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, cool. Well, no, I appreciate your time. I know you're busy. And so uh, you're getting a lot of, a lot of good information. Um, I think definitely I'm probably gonna have to extend another uh, offer to come on the show one day because it was a lot of things I wanted to go into and I was like, ah, we don't have the time. So, but, but thanks for uh, coming on. Thanks for having me. This was fun. I've never done a, a podcast before. So this is my first one and it was a lot of fun and I definitely come back anytime. So thanks for the insightful questions and the opportunity to, to chat today. My pleasure.